chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, as always, we'd love for you to follow along with us. Um, you can grab a blue pew Bible in front of you and find Exodus 4 on page 47. So we are, uh, this is our seventh week now in our series in the book of Exodus, and I was just reminded um, this past week that one of my primary desires each and every week in preaching and pastoring is to help us all as a church bridge this gap that always seems to be here, this gap between God's word and quote-unquote real life, right? That our goal for us here uh, is not to sit down, hear a sermon going through an Old Testament book written thousands of years ago and go, maybe, hey, that was interesting, maybe, um, and then you walk outside the door and you cannot connect the dots between what does this Old Testament text have to do with my relationships, my work, my hobbies, my sexuality, my confidence. And, you know, I think, again, there's a series that digs into uh, an Old Testament book, a long one like Exodus. We're seven weeks in. We got months and months to go. And the thought is that uh, that could make it hard to connect it to real life. But my growing conviction, um, and I mean that, my growing conviction is that going and immersing yourself in the Word of God does not make it harder to connect to real life, but easier. Um, I think there is a thought out there that if a church wants to be relevant, right, all churches want to be relevant in my community, in the world, in our social media, we want to be relevant, that you have to kind of dial back on the Bible stuff a little bit, right? Like, like don't go too deep into the theology uh, because you'll lose people. Because it's not relevant, because it's not interesting. You've got to focus more on charisma. You've got to focus more on creativity and presentation. And uh, I'm, I'm not against creativity. I'm not against application. But I have found the direct opposite to be true. That the deeper we immerse ourselves in the word of God, the more we will see how relevant this is to everyday life. Amen? And Exodus is this, has been, and I pray it will continue to be, this gold mine for us um, because week after week we are witnesses to who God is. That week after week, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, he's revealing himself and, and there's nothing more relevant in life than knowing who God is. And, and so even over the first few weeks, just think about the things that we have seen and heard of a providential God who is in control at all times. That his eternal plan is always moving forward. It never has a hiccup. It never takes a step back. Like God is never late. He's an on-time God. He, God never thinks to himself, ooh, ooh, that didn't work. Whoops. We got to try and cover our bases here, get the Trinity together. You go that way, I'll go this way. Let's figure this out. We've seen that in our lives we face this constant daily battle, whether or not we realize it. And this battle is between are we going to fear God or are we going to fear man? And we make that decision every single day. That a fear of God will lead to the promotion of what is good. That a fear of man will lead to the oppression of what is good. We've seen God promise to save his people. And that his promise to save is always joined with his plan to send. That God's promise to save is always joined with his plan to send his people. That God saves us for a purpose. And the highest purpose is his own glory. That for, for the worship of his name, to make much of him, to serve him. That's not our glory. He's not doing this for our glory. He's doing this for his glory. And he caught, catches us up on something. And he involves us in something that he is doing. And it's very big. He's doing something very big. And he wants 
us to play a part. And that's where we are now in Exodus 4, where this story has come to center on this one man. His name is Moses. And Moses is going to be the one who God raises up to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And so last week we saw Exodus chapter 3. We saw the uh, beginning of the conversation at the burning bush. His call, his commission. Moses, I'm going to save my people and, and I'm, I'm sending you. And this morning in chapter 4, we're going to pick up on this conversation. And, and as we saw last week, as we're going to continue to see this week, this is not an open and shut case for Moses. Moses has some questions. And what we see this morning is this interlocking reality that God works in us by working through us. He works in Moses by working through Moses. That Moses, not a finished product. He's a little rough around the edges. He's not trained and ready to go. In fact, he's probably the direct opposite, which is why we should resonate with Moses. Because sometimes I think we think, I hear this a lot, I think I feel this at times, uh, that we can't really be used by God until we get our life together. I think non-believers will say, I can't really be comfortable in the church until I get my life together, then I'll go to church. Or believers will think, I can't really be used by God in a significant way until I get my things right. We need to be finished products to be of any value. That's often how we think, but that is never how God works. There is no such thing as a believer who is a finished product. And he works in us as he works through us. And the number one obstacle that I think we face as believers, even at Grace Church, is discouragement. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a famous preacher in England, he said this, quote, If I were asked to hazard an opinion as to what the most prevailing disease in the church today is, I would suggest that it is discouragement. How can you be of any value for God's kingdom when you're not even sure about yourself? When you're not even sure about the strength of your faith, how can a church expect to make an impact in this world when it's just a dot on the map in the midst of a vast world around us and everything's happening around us? How can we expect to be of any value when we have this whole world sized up against us? How do we handle discouragement? If you've ever asked that question, that's what, that is what we'll be covering in Exodus 4 today. Um, my plan going into this week was to do all of chapter 4, and it's not going to happen. Okay, so we're going to do verses 1 to 23. Quickly realize I had to call an audible. We'll figure it out down the road. But this morning, chapter 4, verses 1 through 23, we're going to start by reading the first nine verses. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. 
So, he's put his, so he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Three things we see this morning in our text in chapter 4, verses 1 through 23. Number one, God working through Moses. Last week, if you were here, if you remember, Moses asked his first two questions of God in response to his call to go to Egypt and bring his people out of the control of Pharaoh. The first question was, who am I that I could do that? And God simply said what? He said, I'll be with you. And so then that leads to Moses' second question. Okay, who are you? And that led to God saying the simplest and yet most powerful line in your Bible, Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. Tell them the I am sent me to you. Isn't it true that the most powerful sayings in life often require the least amount of words? And God proceeded to give Moses this kind of play-by-play of how it's all going to go down. Um, So you'd think after coming off that, if you put yourself in Moses' shoes, Moses would be like, all right, let's go. So pumped. Not what happened. Instead, Moses gives his third objection. Listen, they're not going to believe me. They're going to hear my crazy story, and they're going to laugh me out of Egypt. They'll laugh at this experience that I claim to have encountered you, and that my life has changed. They're going to hear that. They're going to go, that's nice, and then send me on my way. And I think we can understand Moses being a little hesitant here. But at this point, it's becoming to look a little clearer that Moses is not being humble. He's being disobedient. God just told him in Exodus 3.18, and they, they being the elders of Israel, will listen to your voice. And now Moses is saying, they will not listen to my voice. In objecting that they will not believe him, Moses is making it evident that he does not believe God. Because something else we've already seen in Exodus, if God says it, he will do it. And Moses' job was not to understand how it was all going to happen, but to simply trust that God would do what he said he would. And rather than tell Moses just the same thing over and over, no, no, that they will listen, um, God goes a different direction, and he goes, hey Moses, what you got in your hand there? Moses is looking, this whole time he's been carrying this old wooden stick, he's like, what this? It's a staff. I had this thing forever, man. I walk for a living. It's old. It's worn out. Here's interesting. When reading this, does this pop question pop into your mind? Why did God ask him what was in his hand? Why does God not just initially say, hey, throw that thing on the ground? Why the question? Hey, Moses, what's that in your hand? I think he wanted Moses to first acknowledge this old, worn-out, ordinary tool that he never thinks twice about. He's been carrying it this whole time. Nothing special about it. What's that, Moses? This? It's a staff. Okay, throw it down. And Moses throws it down, and it becomes a snake, and he runs from it. And I've never resonated more with Moses than this moment right here. 
But think about it. This means it's not just your average snake. Moses is a shepherd in the desert. Moses grew up in Egypt. You know what the man has seen a lot in his life? Snakes. And yet he ran from it. So what's that mean? I don't know. I don't think it's reading too much into the text to say this is probably not your average snake. A a dangerous snake, a large snake, a venomous snake. The snake in the ancient world was the premier symbol of Egyptian power. It It was the cobra snake. And so he says, throw it on the ground, come back, now catch it by the tail. I don't know much about snakes, but this much I do know. If you want to catch a dangerous snake, you know what you don't do? Pick it up by the tail. What happens? There's a visual. Pretend there's a large snake. I go to the tail and I pick it up. What happens? It's close to me and it's in good position to attack me. (laughs) Literally the worst place to pick up a snake. And yet that's exactly what God says. It's a step of faith Moses had to take to listen. And Moses, while afraid, to his credit, does what? picks it up by the tail, and boom, it's a staff again. And that moment is a genius display of God's power because it just accomplished multiple things. First, it affirms God's power over his creation. God's in control. Nothing is outside the bounds of his control. And even the snake who shows the symbolic power of Egypt, he has control over. He has control over the snake. He has control over Egypt. Second, it shows Moses can trust God. It took faith to pick that thing up. It took faith to run back into the picture where he was hiding from. Moses did not know how that was going to end. You notice God didn't say, if you pick it up by the tail, it'll become a staff again. No, he says, pick that thing up by the tail. Moses had to take a step of faith to do it. And now he can do the same thing in going to Egypt by faith. And then third, he empowers Moses to say, I will funnel my power through you. And just like that staff is an ordinary tool through which my power flows, so you, Moses, a little old, a little worn out, will be a tool through which the Redeemer's hands will be shown. It's a brilliant sign. But God doesn't even stop there. Moses, put your hand in your cloak and take it out, and his hand was leprous. Leprous in the ancient world was the most feared disease, not only in historical documents, but also in the Bible, because once you saw signs of it, it was too late. It was highly contagious. It was deadly. Brian just prayed for the virus in China. What's been the scariest part about hearing that is that you could have it for two weeks before showing a symptom. This was leprosy in the ancient world. Okay, Moses, put your hand back in. Now, I don't think it was that as hard for Moses to put his hand back in the cloak as it was to pick up the snake. He's like, thank you very much, healed. And God's saying, I have the power to give disease, and I have the power to take it away. And if they still won't believe you, you take some water from the Nile River, the source of life in Egypt, and you pour it on the ground, and it will become blood. This will foreshadow the first plague God will carry out in Egypt. But do you see what God is doing here? He's saying, Moses, you go do for them what I did for you. I showed you my power in the burning bush, and then I spoke to you. So you go do the same. I will work through you. Moses, you show them, and then you tell them. 
This is the purpose of signs, to show God's power and then reveal the source of that power, the great I am. Signs gain trust. Signs show faith. Jesus, when he came into his ministry uh, in Mark chapter 2, early on in his ministry, he made this crystal clear, the purpose of signs. Do you remember the story where Jesus is teaching in a crowded house, and you had four friends who had a friend who was paralyzed, and they couldn't get to Jesus, so what did they do? They went to the ceiling, they cut a hole in, and they lowered him before Jesus. Everyone's probably like, oh no. And what does Jesus say? He looks at the situation, he says he looks at them, meaning the friends, and he looks down at the man, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And you have all the uptight Pharisees who are in the house with them, and they're like, wait, he said what? He doesn't have the authority to do that? And then Jesus, knowing their questions, knowing their murmuring, their hardness of heart, he says to them, why are you asking questions about this? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive, I'll go ahead and heal him too. Turns around, says, son, pick up your bed and go home. And the man picked up his bed and he walked home. Show them so that you can tell them. This is the purpose of signs. For God to work through his creative order in order to reveal his power and authority. So even as Moses struggles, even through his own insecurity and his own fear, God works through him as a tool through which his power flows. That's number one. Let's keep going. Verses 10 through 12, Exodus 4. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Number two, God working in Moses. God working in Moses. Um, again, put yourself in Moses' shoes. If he just performed those signs in front of you, wouldn't you be like, all right, let's go. I'm ready. That's what I needed. All my questions have been answered. Wrong. He first implied, okay, it's those people who won't believe me. I'm with you, God, but those people will not listen to my voice. But now, as the truth gets pulled back, we see the real reason. Moses thinks He's the problem. Lord, I can't speak very well. I'm slow of speech. My tongue gets twisted. I don't have the gift set required here. It's his fourth objection. It's, it's, it's Moses knowing that, that on some level he's going to have to go into Egypt and some form of verbal persuasion was going to be required for this mission. And it's not immediately clear whether Moses' fear was psychological, right? If he just had a fear of speaking before the leaders of Israel, and then not to mention Pharaoh to lead his people out. Maybe he thought, I'm just going to shut down in fear. Maybe he knows the inner workings of the royal family and what level of rhetoric was needed to gain their respect. Maybe he thought, I don't have that. Maybe he's thinking back to his educational days growing up in the royal family and going, that was always a struggle for me. 
Notice he said, I'm not eloquent either in the past, right? This is a long-formed fear that has been burned into his mind. Maybe he's just forgotten the language after 40 years of being a Midian. Maybe the problem was vocal. Perhaps Moses had an actual speech impediment of some sort. Maybe he was self-conscious about this. God, I can't even get the words out. I I can't be clear here. How how am I going to overcome that? But whatever it was, Moses battled severe discouragement in himself. Severe discouragement in being able to carry out the calling God has placed on his life. It's not that he didn't love the idea of his people being freed. I'm sure he did love that. He hurt for his people. I'm sure he loved the idea of God showing his power to Pharaoh. But he thought he'd get in the way. That's all good. I can't be a part of that. If this is riding on me, ain't going to work. I'm too limited. I'm too old. I'm too dysfunctional. I got too many rough edges here. I'm too fill-in-the-blank what you'd put for yourself. As I said in the introduction, I think Satan's most effective arrow in his attack against the church and God's people today is the sharp edge of discouragement. The arrows that cut deep into the soul and whisper, you're not good enough for that. You're not smart enough. You don't know the Bible enough. You're not gifted enough to make a difference here. Why don't you sit down and let the gifted people go get to work? You're just getting in the way. I think he reminds us of past failure. You tried that before. Remember that? You put yourself out there and you got shut down. You remember? Remember how badly that ended? Remember how embarrassing that was? Remember how ineffective that was? Won't be any different this time. I think this can keep us even from being happy for others who are using their gifts effectively. That you want to enjoy how God is using them, but it's kind of a reminder that God's not using you like that. That you're not as good as them. That you guys stay on the sidelines. I think the biggest obstacle we face is not outside forces that pressure us, not outside forces that won't listen to us, but it's the downtrodden soul within. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that quote I quoted at the beginning a half century ago, and yet I think it's as if not more true today that personal discouragement is the number one the church challenge the church faces in carrying out its calling. It slows us down. You know, I always resonated with Moses in Exodus 4, because some of you know my story. Uh, But there was a period of a few years between I felt God's calling on my life into ministry and me actually entering ministry. I'm not even kidding when I'm saying this. I did not want to. Did not want to. And I came up with all the different reasons that I could convince people to hold them off as to why I shouldn't or wasn't the right time. But the biggest reason that I never really shared, except those closest to me, was my crippling fear of public speaking. 
And I was so confused. I said, God, why does it seem like you're calling me into ministry if I'm struggling like this? And, and it wasn't just the fear in general. I would struggle actually in the act of speaking. I couldn't breathe well while speaking. And some of you are like, bro, you still don't breathe very well while speaking. <laughs> All right, I know. But when I would begin to talk, it'd be scripture, it'd be a prayer in church, it'd be an upward devotion. I would feel my breathing start to get cut off. I didn't know. And my voice would start to change and get higher and weeder and, wor- and weaker. And, and like, it wasn't just in my head because my wife, I'd be like, hey, did that sound a little weird? And she'd be like very compassionate, be like, yeah, what's going on up there? <laughs> like it is just, I don't know, it just changes. I never see that happen, hear that happen anywhere else. And so like it wasn't just in my head. And so I was so frustrated with God. And, then he, and he was kept putting opportunities to speak in my path, and I didn't want them. And so over and over again, I began to lie to people as to why I couldn't do the thing they were asking me to do. And that goes back to college of taking a zero on a presentation so I didn't have to do the presentation. I'm like, I'll take the C minus, that's passing. And I was so fed up, especially now with the fact that God was convicting me that now you're sinning to say no because you're lying. And I remember the moment at our apartment in Hawthorne where I just said, God, I am tired of giving in to my own fear. This was early 2013. And I just said, God, I'm going to lay my yes down. Any opportunity that comes, I'm just going to say yes and I'll figure it out. And if this is your plan, man, we'll just see where it leads. And if this is not your plan, take the opportunities away or make me crash and burn so nobody ever asks me again. And I'm not kidding, within six weeks, six weeks, I was asked to preach here at Grace for the first time. And I was like, dang it. <laughs> it was like the vivid, like, be careful what you pray for. Just be careful what you pray for. But I laid my yes down, and I vividly remember that my comfort was, and my comfort is, in God's answer to Moses. Because do you notice God's answer? He does not butter him up. He does not say, Moses, you're going to be so great, man. You're so charismatic. You're so clear. They're going to love it. No, what's he do? He calls out Moses for his lack of faith. And he reminds Moses who he is. Hey, Moses, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or blind? You think I make mistakes? Who is sovereign over all of that? You just go. And I will teach you what you need to say as you go. So listen right here. The truest thing about you is not what you can or cannot do or how gifted or not gifted you may or may not be or what limitations you might have. The truest thing about you is that you have been chosen by God and have received his grace and that he dwells within you. And that you are now God's chosen servant. And you are now God's hands and feet in the world. And God saves you. And God is going to send you. And God does not make mistakes. Moses, who made you? You think I forgot something? Hear me. If God left it out of you, that means it's not necessary to carry out his calling within you. If God left it out of you, it means it's not necessary for you to carry out your calling within you. The answer to discouragement is not, I need to be reminded of how great I am. The answer to discouragement is to go back to the source of who made you this way. 
Listen, if God wanted you to speak better, you'd speak better. If God wanted you to be a better organizational leader, you'd be a better organizational leader. If God wanted you to have a different childhood, you'd have a different childhood. If he wanted you to have you a different past, a different marriage, a different job, you'd have one. But he puts it in your life or he does not put it in your life because he's going to do a work through you as he does a work in you. Who put that mouth on your face, Moses? I did. And I'm still saying, go. Because this way, it's through our weakness that God's strength will rise. It's through our weakness that God will get the glory. And so when he does work through us, of all the people who will know that it's him and not us, it will be us. Right? I still get the same pit in my stomach every single morning when I wake up on Sunday. I have the same pit in my stomach when I am sitting in the front row preparing to go up to preach. It never goes away. And you know what? In many ways, I hope it never goes away. Because every single week, I have this reoccurring cycle where God's saying, hey, listen, this is me, not you. Now get up there. God has uniquely wired and made you. And everything you have, you can use for God's glory And everything you don't have, you don't need. Because when you're part of a community of faith, you don't need to do it all. You are one part of an entire body. And when each of those parts does their part, the body functions the way it's supposed to, to glorify him and to make him known. And this is why God saves us. For his glory, and then the phrase that was twice in our text so far, that they may believe. This is why God uses you. This is why God sends you. To build up the body within, that they may believe. That a world that is watching might see the power of God in and through us. And once we show them Christ, we tell them about Christ, and we trust the Lord with whatever happens next. All right, let's finish the passage. We're going 13 to 23. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Number three, God works before Moses. His work goes before Moses. I wish I could say that this was the breaking point for Moses, that his discouragement runs so deep, but now he's done with excuses and God has revealed himself, and now Moses says, okay, let's go. No. Now, fifth objection, final objection, Moses has nothing left in the tank, and he just says, okay, please just send someone else. Just anyone. And then we read, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. You know, the Bible says that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I think that's true here. This was not an immediate anger by Moses, that he tried and tried to encourage him. In fact, Moses will proclaim that very truth about God later in Exodus. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And so it's important for us to just know and remember that God's anger, not like our anger. God's anger is always righteous. God's anger is never too quick. And God's anger does not cancel out his loving care for his people. And even here, God was angry with Moses and his deliberate lack of faith, his deliberate disobedience. And yet he's still gracious to Moses by providing a spokesman to join him. His brother, or likely his half-brother, Aaron. Which is ironic for me. (laughs) God works through Moses. God works in Moses. And now he's clearly going before Moses to pave the way. You notice something really interesting and cool here? That God's providential control and his knowledge for the situation, when he says, in fact... Aaron is already on his way. Think about that. He ordained and stirred up within Aaron to start from Egypt to head towards Moses because he knew this would happen. That man's irresponsibility does not cancel out God's sovereignty. God did not want Aaron to be involved. That was not his original design. But he ordains it because he knew Moses would not want to go. And there's a lot to chew on there and think about there. But God has an intentional design for us to follow in faithfulness. But hear me, if we don't obey, his purposes not impacted. Our blessing is what is impacted. I think disobedience blocks blessing. That Moses is missing out on the fullest blessing by his disobedience. And blessing doesn't mean material, it doesn't mean financial. I think blessing in the Bible is primarily financial. I mean, no, not primarily financial, do not quote that, all right? (laughs) Primarily spiritual. But there are side effects to disobedience. Listen, Aaron, as we'll see, he's kind of a mixed bag. He does some good things, and as we'll see, he does some seriously bad things. But through it all... Through it all, God will see his purposes through. His purpose is not impacted. Moses' blessing is what's impacted. 
And from here, Moses finally leaves the burning bush and he heads back to Midian and he goes to his father-in-law Jethro and says, hey, I gotta go back to Egypt. Interesting, he says, my brother's in Egypt, meaning that he still primarily sees himself as a Hebrew. I need to go back to my people. And he kind of lies to Jethro. He goes, I have to go see if they're still alive. So I think that even in this, we're seeing Moses just in his imperfection. He's not willing to give the full reason because maybe Jethro won't let him go back. Wait, you're doing what? You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to bring my daughter and my grandchildren with you. No. So he maybe kind of lies to get the release. But either way, Jethro gives the green light. Moses takes his wife on a donkey and begins to trek back to his homeland. Does that remind you of anything else in the Bible? Takes his wife, puts her on a donkey, and heads back to his hometown. Final thing to take in from this passage. Another example of God going before Moses in his journey. Moses says, see that you do all these miracles before Pharaoh. And then a very puzzling line. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. What? There is a lot to say about this. And we don't have to do it all right now. Because Pharaoh's heart being hardened will be mentioned 20 times in the following chapters. This is the first. Sometimes we'll read it as God hardening his heart. Other times we'll read it that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Still other times it won't say clearly one way or the other. But this place is as clear as anywhere in the Bible, and you know I say this because I say it wherever we come across it in the text, the paradox between God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That God does not cause anybody to sin. He does not enjoy anyone to sin. He is never responsible for somebody's sin, but he is always sovereign over it. That nobody, by their actions, can put God in a bad spot. No one can jam him up. No one can make him nervous because he is the great I am. And that this paradox of sovereignty and responsibility is not a puzzle that we need to solve. It's a mystery we need to behold. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? The answer in your Bible is yes. And we'll see this over and over in scripture. The, the most famous one is did God Harden Judas's heart to betray Jesus? Or did Judas choose on his own accord to betray Jesus and send him to the cross? The answer is yes. That God will do what God will do. And his ways are not our ways. But we know at the end of the day that no one will ever be able to stand before him on the final day of judgment and say, hey, this wasn't fair. You didn't give me a chance. We will always be responsible for whether we reject or accept God's plan. And he will harden whom he will harden, and he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And it's where we finish our passage this morning, where God says, say this to Israel, no, say this to Pharaoh, that Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go, that he may serve me. God is moving to free Israel, not because they were so impressive, not because they earned it, not because he was watching, like they were pretty good, they deserve to be freed. He frees Israel because he loves them.
and he loves them. You know why? Because he loves them. And while you might think, well, I need something more than that. That's a, that seems like a horrible reason. I'll explain, to you, explain it to you this way. If you were to go down the hall after the church service and you were to find a parent picking up one of their children from nursery, and you were to ask that parent, hey, why do you love your son? Or why do you love your daughter? Here's what you won't hear. At least, this is what I hope you won't hear. You won't hear them say, well, you know what? He was walking before he was a year old. And you won't hear a mother say, well, don't tell anyone, but his preschool teacher just told me he's advanced. And that she thinks he's going to be advanced in elementary school. You know what you'll hear when you ask a parent why they love their child? I love them because they're mine. And there'll never be anything they can do where I'll stop loving them. And there's nothing that they'll be able to do that I'll start to love them more. It doesn't mean we can't hurt our parents or grieve them or make them proud. Because God can be proud and God can be grieved. But his love is never on the table for his children. He loves them because he loves them. And that is why he's going to free Israel. And then God gives a foreshadow to the 10th and final plague. We saw the foreshadow to the first plague. Now the foreshadow to the 10th plague. That he will kill every firstborn son in Egypt. Unless a sacrifice is made. And the blood of that sacrifice is shed on the doorpost. In which he will then pass over their home. Speaking of signs, there are signs all over this passage that point to the most important thing of all. God's sovereign control and God's love for his people being fulfilled in the giving of his divine son to save his firstborn son, the people of God. So here's how I'll end. If you've got nothing else this morning, just disregard it all and get this. I want our church to fulfill our calling. I want to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel with the desire that hurts. I want to see everybody manifesting their gifts in this body to make disciples, to show Christ, to speak of Christ, to know Jesus and make him known. But Christianity at its core is not about finding your calling. It's about trusting the one who fulfilled his calling to seek and save the lost. That God does not love you because you've fulfilled your calling. That, that it's not because you're advanced. And he does not not love you because you're not doing what he wants you to do. He loves you because he loves you. And because you're his. And he sent his son to fulfill his calling. Freeing you from the slavery of sin. From the enslavement of having to do better and be better. And so for Christians, if you're a Christian in here, listen close. We're all going to blow our calling at some point. We're all going to fall short. We're all going to feel the fiery arrows of insecurity and discouragement. And it's in those moments where we need to know that we should not hide from God, but run toward him. Lean into Christ, because he says that we are who we are, and we are his. And we get renewed by his spirit, and then we keep going. And he will continue to work in you as even as he works through you. And then for those in here who have never fully trusted your life to Jesus Christ, this is the call on your life. Before you have a calling, this is your calling. That he's not waiting for you to do something impressive to start loving you. 
He already sent his son to live the life you couldn't live. He already sent his son to die the death that you deserved. So that by you repenting of your sin and placing your trust and faith in Jesus, you are free. Like truly free. Freed from sin. Freed into a life to worship and glorify and serve him. And then immediately get used to play a part to make his name known. And believing in Jesus does not mean all your questions are answered. It means responding to the call of faith, even with your questions, and to go and to walk ahead. Let's pray.